The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Say amen. We have a hope, only one hope, given by you, and it is you. Thank you. And thank you for giving us music to enable us to sing, to connect it to our hearts in a different way than just speaking. You're kind and good. We turn to a text today and we see your goodness laid before us and think about it and explore it. I pray that you would be good by showing us the depth of your goodness and by stirring us to trust you to trust it. This is a great need of ours. You in your character, you are good. You are good defined. And we easily forget that. And it is important. So Father, please, send your Spirit here in our midst to work in hearts of men and women and boys and girls here to remind us and to convince us this aspect of who you are, to stir us with it and to support us with it. I ask you to do that, Lord, this morning. Use the words that I will speak, weak as they may be, disordered as they may be. Would you make them straight in the minds of your people here and feed them? We look to you, our only hope. We ask you to make your word clear. To by your spirit, draw us after you. Do good to us, your people, I pray. I pray in Christ's name for his glory and his church. That he would win it all to himself to turn it over to you. That all may be wrapped up in you for our good and for your glory. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to 2 Samuel chapter 10, finding there quite another turn in content and in tone from chapter 9. And chapter 9 itself was quite a turn in content and in tone from chapter 8. Chapter 8 was large-scale, multinational, geopolitical, militaristic. And then we switched to chapter 9. It was very small, very personal, very familial. Chapter 8 was about God through his king David striking down. That was the, the repeated note in that. Striking, striking, striking. Seven times throughout that chapter. Striking down his enemies through his king David. And then chapter 9 switches and we have God through his king David pouring out loving kindness on one who might look like an enemy. So great changes there between 8 and 9. And we looked at that last week, the chapter 9, and we saw in it one of the most compelling stories of the grace and the kindness of God in all the Bible. God, through David, blessing this man named Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan. He brings this man, who should be an enemy, he brings him near and shows him that he has no anger towards him, no, no wrath towards him. And he restores to him the lands of his father, so he restores him a status and, and, and living wealth. 
uh, standing in the society. But, but best of all, four times it says he brought him to his table and seated him at his table, seated him at his table as a son, and he ate from his table. He makes this one who should be an outsider an enemy as if adopted into his own family, pouring on him blessing, showing him tremendous loving kindness. That was a key word in last week's chapter, which is a crystal clear model of the gospel. A clear display of how God loved us in his king, Christ. We who are nothings, like Mephibosheth was a nothing. We who are nothings, who should be enemies, He has poured out on us grace and love and brought us near. It's the loving kindness of God in Christ. May God, as we said last week, give us strength to know this love of God in Christ that surpasses knowledge. And then knowing that love, may He move us to having been loved, love others to love others in the body, to love others outside of the body, and above all, to love God Himself, adoring. To, to come before God and to love Him actually with the heart, not just expressed in word, but to adore Him. That was pressed upon us in the intimate account of chapter 9, and then the perspective changes again as we come to chapter 10. It is again big picture. It is again multinational. It is again militaristic. But slightly different tone. It doesn't have quite the same tone of judgment as chapter 8 had. Instead, we see something about God and His goodness in this chapter. Particularly God's goodness in the midst of unexpected and difficult situations. So that's what we're going to consider today in chapter 10. I'm going to read all of the, all the chapter, then pass back through it to make sure that we understand the details before making a couple of overarching observations. This is 2 Samuel. Chapter 10. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanun his son reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanun the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun, their lord, Do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hanun took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. When it was told David... He sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, Remain at Jericho until your beards have grown, and then returned. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Bethrehov and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Maacah with a 1,000 men, and the men of Tov, 12,000 men. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men, and the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah and of Rehov and the men of Tov and Makkah were by themselves in the open country. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him, both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. 
the rest of his men he put in the charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, If the Syrians are too strong for me, you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians had fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. But when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together. And Hadad Ezer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. They came to Helam with Shobak, the commander of the army of Hadad Ezer, at their head. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed of the Syrians the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen and wounded Shabak, the commander of their army, so that he died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadad-Ezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. Second Samuel 10. The passage begins with the death of Nahash, the king of the Ammonites. The Ammonites were one of the peoples that David had subdued in chapter 8. So we've met them before. So they are beneath him. He's, he's a king over a region. They, they still have their own region. They still have their own king, but he has, he has control. He's dominant over them. But it seems that it used to be the other way around, back when Nahash was king of the Ammonites. It's likely that he is the same Ammonite king that we met before, way back in 1 Samuel chapter 11. He was an evil, brutal king. He was the one who was going to gouge out the right eyes of the men of Jabesh-Gilead until Saul, brand new king Saul, came and defeated him. Seems like it's the same guy, but that was a long time ago. There's, there's no timeline given us, but that was 50 plus years ago. Long time's passed. And it seems like somewhere along there, Nahash came to deal loyally with David. David says so in verse 2. And it's that same word, loyal, that connects us back to chapter 9. The word translated kindness back in chapter 9 several times. Very important word. We talked about it last week. And I rendered it loving kindness as I was talking but pointing out that it's translated a bunch of different ways depending on context, but it often sits in the context of a covenant or an arrangement. And it often carries the idea of some condescension from one in power to one who is weaker or beneath. A faithfulness, a loyalty to do good to this one who's on, on the bottom, so to speak. So it can be translated kindness or loving kindness or loyalty. We can imagine that perhaps Nahash dealt loyally, did dealt with David, who was on the run from Saul, was kind to him because, kind of like the Philistines, they had a common enemy of Saul. That's what we can imagine, but it doesn't say what happened exactly. But somehow, he dealt with him loyally, did good to him, was kind to him, and now he's dead. And David is dominant, so the shoe's on the other foot. And because... He was shown this kindness just like he was shown kindness by Jonathan and wanted to show kindness then to Jonathan's son. He also wants to show kindness to the son of Hanun, 
to, to Hanun, the son of Nahash, this foreigner, this outsider. David is a king characterized by loving kindness. So what David does is a kindness with the best of motives. He reaches out to Hanun. And totally unexpectedly, it is met with an atrocious affront. Maybe one of those things kind of hard for us to grab because we don't live in that culture. But persuaded by his princes that David's just spying out the land to find out what all of our weak points are and to keep us down, to, to conquer us even more. He shaves off half their beard, which is not a trim, it's a shave off half. Like that. Clear, culturally, a clear display of a, of a cutting off of their manhood. Which is why David allows them to kind of stay out of pub, the public eye. Stay in Jericho until your beard grows back. Don't expose yourself in public like that. It's, it's shameful. It's humiliating. As is having your garments cut off up to the hips. And then having to walk out of the city. Mocked, Surely. This is public, shocking, degrading of the official envoys of the dominant king over top of you. David has a heart. He has a, he has a disposition towards loving kindness, yes. But he knows he has to deal with this in might or he's going to lose total control of everything. You can, you can imagine a little bit of this. We kind of look like a war over a beard. But imagine if, if John Kerry went to... Some other went to China and they shaved his head and stripped him naked and put him on a plane. We'd have to do something about that. And don't do that anymore. Wouldn't be good enough. David responds to this as he knows he must militarily and they know he's going to respond that way and so they go and hire a bunch of mercenaries. Some of the folks that we've met before from chapter 8. The Ammonites rally an army from those under the authority, authority of Hadadezer. It's a small force at first. We may list the numbers. They're not that big of an army. And when Joab comes with the Israelite army, it also is a rather small army, just, just the standing army. Joab with his second-in-command, Abishai. They come to punish Hanun, and they unexpectedly find themselves in a dangerous trap. He realizes the battle is before him and behind him. He's surrounded. He walked into something. What follows then in verses 9 to 14, it's, it's the center of the passage. It's the explanation of Joab's plan and, and his speech. And for such a brief event, we get a lot of text. So we're going to end up focusing on what he says there. As we move on, we're going to give attention to that. But he says what he's going to do, and he says why he's going to do it. And then they fight and win the battle and go home. But it's not over. The Syrians, verse 15, saw that they had lost that, and now they all rise up. Those whom David had struck down in chapter 8, those under the command of Hadad-Ezer, they all gather together, and Hadad-Ezer calls out all the stops. He pulls out everybody, even from beyond the Euphrates, rallies a massive army, and marches on Israel. And David, hearing that, he calls out all the stops and musters all of Israel. Not just the standing army, he calls up all of Israel and leads them out personally, crosses the Jordan and goes out to what could be another Mount Gilboa moment. This is everything on the line. And as he's marching, you can almost imagine him thinking, how did all of this happen? 
I just wanted to tell him I was sorry his dad died. And that I was going to deal with him kindly. What on earth is going on here? And the answer is verse 19. What's going on? God is providentially putting an end to the Syrian threat once and for all. David, you struck them down before, but obviously they weren't done, but now they're going to be done. You've called them all out, surfaced them all, and you now will have peace. You're welcome. Though neither Joab, surrounded in verse 9, or David marching off the battle in verse 17, would have thought to have said thank you. On the front end, this looks terrible. All of this unexpected, hard to predict, dangerous, frightening, humiliating, shameful stuff that rises up on the back end can be seen to be, wow, that is good. Peace. All those folks dealt with and their allegiances switched from Hadad Ezer over to us soundly and resolutely, and they are afraid to help the Ammonites. That ain't going to happen again. Thank you. That's the chapter. That's what's going on here. A display of something that God does that's good, that doesn't look like it all throughout. From that, I'm going to make two observations and kind of push the goodness of God towards us and help us to think about it. Here's the first one. The Lord will do good for the sake of His kingdom. The Lord will do good for the sake of His kingdom. I draw this particularly from what Joab says in verse 12. His actions and his speech, as I said, they're the center of the chapter, and for the amount of time it took, they get a lot of ink. There are other things that took... Much longer and just briefly described. The battles themselves are just very briefly described. But his little talk about what he's going to do and why, it's a lot of attention. So we should be drawn there to, to look what's here for us. And what we find is he gives his little tactical discussion and then where he ends is with a plea that is his and he means for it to be their and our resting place. May the Lord do what seems good to him. Very end of verse 12. Which is not, of course, a statement about the possibilities. Maybe the Lord will do what seems good to him, and maybe he won't do what seems good to him. Who can tell? So I'm going to ask him, please do what seems good to you. It's It's not a plea, actually. It's stated as a plea, but it's a statement. The Lord will do what seems good to him. That's why I can rest here. You do this, I'll do this. If this happens, then we'll respond this way. If this happens, respond this way. Be brave, courageous, and trust that the Lord will do what seems good to Him. We'll leave the results to Him. And furthermore, what seems good to God is good. He is never mistaken. So what Joab really means is the Lord will do good according to how he sees good. Here in this, 
We will act, do the best we can, and we'll leave it in His hands. We'll trust Him. He will do good. Now, what what may happen may not seem good to us on the short end. This is a trap. We don't like that. We may die in battle. Who knows? But He will do good as He sees it. Let's pause for a minute and think about how does He see good? Often when I'm talking about this, good from God's perspective, I'll use language, and I have over the last few weeks used language, and will again this morning, that kind of pulls out elements of his covenant with David. So we could define it that way. Good is, from God's perspective, that which exalts the name of his king, that which exalts his own name, and that which establishes his people in a place of peace. That's good. Those, those are elements coming right out of the covenant. If we could think about it a step further back than that, though. Where does good come from? There is no abstract concept in the universe called good that then God, separate from it, looks at it and says, I like that. I'm going to do that. God Himself is good. Or turn that around. Good is God. And good always existed forever past before there were any people, before there was any creation. There was always good because there was always God. And there was always good being done being displayed because God was always displaying Himself to Himself. Think about this for a second. I know this might stretch a little bit of how you usually think, but follow this. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are always interacting with each other and they themselves, He Himself, the one God who exists in three persons, He Himself being good, as the Father looks at the Son and the Son looks at the Father, they see good being shown, being displayed, and they glory in that within the Godhead, within the one person of the Godhead. This has always been going on, forever past. There's a whole lot more I can say about the Trinity. I'm not going to talk about the Trinity. I'm talking about the goodness of God. But it, it, it connects back to the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, always good, always showing good, always displaying good, and then they do something good, they create. The Father decreeing and the Son executing, and the Spirit actually acting. Goodness, and then what is good in the creation? The same thing that was good before. The displaying of God in the creation. God the Father and God the Son looking at each other, good. I see the beauty of God when I look at the Father, says the Son, and vice versa. I see the beauty of God. I see the righteousness of God. I see the justice of God. I see the power of God. I see the wisdom of God. God is so good. It is glorious. It is wonderful. Let's show that to the creation. That is good. The displaying of God who is good to a creation. That is good. If you never think about that, 
will be several steps removed from it, and good will become defined by what you see right here in front of you and by how it feels to you in the moment. And you will miss this massive truth that good is the displaying of the good to you and the displaying of it to you in a way that you will get. You'll see it and connect with it, live in it, rejoice in it, eat it and drink it like bread and wine. That is good. And God is always about good. He always does what is good in His sight. This is a glorious thing. Now, I I know full well that I just kind of went off the plantation there. Maybe you followed all that. Maybe I could have expressed it more clearly. Maybe it's new to you. Maybe it's not. That's the direction. If your thinking would travel that direction, glory would come to you. Marvelous, beautiful good would come to you. And freedom would come to you. Because you would see when God does that, if, if God acts in a situation such that He displays more of Himself to me, He kind of brings me into that wonderful thing going on there forever past between the Father and the Son. He, he brings that experience to me. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I got cancer and lost my job and my spouse died. And God used that to display more of Himself to me. Oh, it was good. Not that cancer and death themselves are good. Not that dying in battle is good. Not that being trapped in an ambush is good. But God will do good in it and will do good in everything because He Himself is good. This is a marvelous thing that we see going on here with Joab. He he takes this statement, he makes this statement for us, calls us to think about it, and then to rest in it. I'm going to set the armies like this, fight strongly, remember what we're fighting for, for God, God's people, God's kingdom, and God will do whatever is good, whatever ends up displaying more of God to us. I trust him with that. Let's go. That's Joab. But the same point is taught beyond Joab in a, in a more subtle manner in the whole course of the, of the chapter, all the events. You can look at what Joab says and what's going on with Joab and we'd still misunderstand something. You could still make a mistake of thinking like this. God is going to do good in this predicament that Joab finds himself in unexpectedly surrounded, facing an uncertain battle, making a plan on the fly. Okay, God's going to do good there. Thank goodness that God can be counted on to do good in unexpected situations. Here's the mistake. In unexpected situations, comma, in reaction to unpredictable human actions. That's the mistake. In reaction to. This is a very common mistake. We, we slide into it without even thinking. Thank goodness that God, like the cavalry, always rides in to save the day at the end. 
just in the nick of time. Or it's as if God is, is a great chess player for good against evil. And evil moves like this, and God is brilliant, counters it. And then evil moves like that, and God psh, counters it. Reactive. That's not what's going on. Here, anywhere. God is proactive. In truth, God is proactively working together all things, even the unexpected humiliations and fearful traps in all things, doing good for the sake of His kingdom. Verse 19 is not a lucky outcome. It's the goal of a great plan. God providentially brings about verse 19, a good and great goal for the sake of His King, and for the sake of His name, for the sake of His people, breaking the power of the enemies, establishing His people in a, in a new level of peace and, and ascendancy in the region, honoring the name of His King. Hadadezer gathers together this massive army and is crushed. And when all the kings saw that, they switched. They made peace and they switched allegiances. It's a very good thing. And it all came about because Hadadezer rolled the dice on a big battle. Which came about because they lost the small battle. Verse 15 which came about because Hanun asked for Syrian help in ambushing David's expected retaliation, which came about because Hanun listened to his foolish advisors and shamed the messengers, which came about because David sent a condolence card, which came about because David wanted to show loyal love to Hanun, which came about because Nahash had shown loyal love to him, which came about because years and years ago they had a common enemy, Saul. None of this is coincidental. Living it, we wouldn't see it. We don't, we don't know it, living it. But the point is, as you step back and look at this, you see there is a mastermind who puts his hand on one end and on the other end of all eternity and says, I hold all of this and I weave through all of it countless plots, all of it to do good. That is to display the beauty of myself into my creation for my honor and for the honor of my king and for the good of my people. All of it. Displayed in, in the particular event of this, of this one battle with Joab, displayed in, in the bigger picture. This is a marvelous truth. You live lives that are filled with, with little details that are surprising and trying and unexpected and frightening and humiliating and hard in, in a bunch of different ways. And what we see here is that God is involved in each little detail to do good and is weaving, weaving each little detail and all the, all the complexity, weaving it all together in the big picture to do good, both the little and the big. There is a God lurking over your life. And I use that word especially because what's, what's 
The trouble for us is that we are tempted to think there is one lurking over my life. And as we often use that word lurking, he's lurking to get me, to hurt me. I can't, uh, what's going to happen tomorrow? What's going to happen if, when this happens, oh, no, don't let, We walk through life expecting that on the other side of this, there is hurt coming or pain coming. And there is one who lurks over your life to do you good. To do you good. Joab in the middle of his, of his ambush here, and David on the way to battle, they might not see that right in front of them. God doesn't always show Himself in His lurking. But He is there to do you good, you people of God. And He always does what is good, and He always does it. Can't be stopped. This is true. And if you will know it, it will free you to live. And that's what leads us to the second observation. The goodness of God... Here's the second observation. The goodness of God stirs and supports His people in the hard places. The goodness of God... It's a marvelous blessing for people who are in his kingdom. Blessing this way, it stirs and supports us in the hard places. Stirs, I mean, kind of like moves, motivates, compels, drives. Stirs us to trust him, to obey him, to act in line with him and his values. By convincing you, This path, good, lies on this path in the face of the opposite offers that say, no, in fact, good lies on this path. Take this one. It's called temptation. We're stirred to walk this path, to walk a path that that is according to God's command, that is faithful to Him, that engages with His work, as we reflect on the goodness of God, stirred and supported, very closely related, supports us first on the inside in our thoughts, in our hearts. As you fear what, what all kinds of pain and hardship is going to come from this, reflect on the goodness of God and it supports you, it upholds you as you walk down this path. Stirred to it and supported as you walk it. The goodness of God. If you will believe it. It's there all the time, but we have to embrace this and see it, remember it, and believe it. So I think this point is implied in the first couple of verses as David begins to act and contemplates what he's going to do. It's implied by the use of this word, the the loyal word. 
as it connects us back, it unavoidably connects us back to the previous chapter. And we look at how David, back in chapter 9, was a king of loving kindness. Why? Because he had been first loved. The point we made last week. We love because we were first loved. David is a king like this because he is first loved. So there's something back here that stirs him, that moves him to walk the path of love with, in that case, Mephibosheth. That's the kind of king he is, and we see that king consistently now as we move into chapter 10. I want to show loving kindness. That's the kind of king I am. I want to show loving kindness to another son, Hanun. So I think it's implied there that David acts in love towards Hanun, stirred to it by his experience of the faithful love of God, the goodness of God to him. I think we're also supposed to think about that we see David marching off to battle, that he's probably still got that same thing on his mind, but it doesn't say so. So I think it's implied in David, but clearer with Joab, again in the middle of the passage. He saw the trap, is stirred to action by what? Stirred by his confidence in the statement at the end of verse 12 about God's good, goodness. You do this, I'll do that, fight courageously, and God will do what is good. He's stirred to action by that and encouraged and supported by it. In other words, what I'm trying to say here is that if Joab doesn't have, if David doesn't have a prior experience and a mental grasp of God doing good to me, they don't act as you see them. They either act in in retaliation or, or exploitation against Hanun, or they shrink back in fear in the face of the trap. But with the prior experience, reinforced by it, remembering the goodness of God, they step out and take the risk that Hanun will respond negatively or that the battle may go poorly. Whatever may happen, God will do good. I trust it. I'm going to step out. Stirred to action. The goodness of God stirring and supporting Joab. This is such an important point for... I want to say every single one of us, Christian and non-Christian alike. Let me talk to Christians first. Do you realize, Christian, God delivers to you, God tells you that He is good and that He always does good and that He always works good in your life. He tells you all that for a reason. A reason greater than so that you'll know more information. He tells you that. He puts it in front of you to create a great barrier against shrinking back. A great barrier against falling down. A great barrier against fear and doubt and sin and temptation. The goodness of God is delivered to you as a bulwark against sin. 
as a sustainer of hope in your heart. If you were a, if you were a betting man, if you were, if you were somebody in Vegas betting at the roulette table, and you knew, knew that every bet on red is a winner, knew it, would you ever put money on black? I hope not. If you knew it, and if you knew that every bet on red was a winner, would you sometimes put money on red and sometimes just watch? No, I know. I'm not advocating gambling here, okay? (laughs) Work with me. Would you? I'm going to sit this one out. Oh, look, a winner. Because if I had money on red, I would have won. Would you put money on red and cringe? Look at it with one eye closed. If you knew every bet on red was a winner. No. You would put money on red every single time, everything you had confidently. If you knew that red was a winner. And you would look at those putting money on black and you would think, why? Don't you know? Why would you do that? You look at people hedging their bets, putting on a black and red both, maybe to kind of cover. No, there's no need to cover. You look at people standing around the edge of the table watching, and you'd say, get in the game and put money on red. If you knew. So why do you live, Christian? Why do you live hesitantly, hedging, fearful, Standing aside, drawn over to invest in other things. Because you don't know. You know, you know God is good. But you don't know. You know He's good. If you're a Christian, you've experienced some of His goodness. You have experienced the freedom that the cross bought you. You know some of it. But brothers and sisters, I I plead with you, know this goodness of God. Know the passionate commitment of God to in all things always do good to you, child of God. In everything. Everything. In the little details and in the big picture, both. In every single thing. Yes, I I know some of us, we know it's going to work out in the end, but right now is terrible. Right now, in the terrible, is also doing good to you. In the terrible even, He is going to reveal Himself, which is the definition of good, remember? He's going to reveal Himself to you in new and in fresh ways, even right now in the terrible. And it could very well be that that's the purpose of the terrible, if you considered that. To strip away from you the other stuff that draws you. Right now, good to you. And good to you. Always. Red always wins. Do you know it? Then do not fear and do not hedge and do not put money in other things and do not sit out. 
The goodness of God is delivered to you in word and displayed for you on the cross. The goodness of God is delivered to you to stir you to act in line with Him and to support you as you walk through unexpected, humiliating trials that threaten everything in your life to support you in that. The goodness of God thrown on you, spoken to you, showed to you. He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Do you know it? God intends that you know it. This never-ending goodness. And if you're not a Christian, there is a well, a sea, an ocean full of goodness here. And you stand on the shore currently in sight of it, but not in it. And the offer from the King of loving kindness is let me show you goodness. Do not be Hanun and suspecting he wants to get me. Throw him aside. He doesn't want to get you. If he wants to get you, he's already got you. Jesus came into the world, he says this in John 3, essentially. I came into the world not to condemn men, they're already condemned. I came into the world to save men and women and boys and girls, to save those who already are condemned. He already has you. He has come to save. Embrace Him. Christian, we're going to walk through life facing an, an endless array. We see just one little scenario here in this chapter of, of the unexpected arising and twists and turns in the story. That's what all of life is. That's what all of life is. And as we sung before the sermon, He's our only hope. Thank goodness that He's a good God. He means to to press that on you, to undergird your heart, to stir you to follow Him in hope. And when you find yourself next Wednesday afternoon shrinking back, lured by temptation, the the promise has, has it not always all along been, is God really good? Is God really good? Of course He's not really good. He's saying no to you. That's been the challenge all along. A lie from the very beginning. And next Wednesday afternoon when you hear that lie, is God really good? If He was really good, He'd give you this. At that moment, may God press on you. No, in fact, I am good. If I say no, it's because I'm good. If I say yes, it's because I'm good. May He press that on you and stir you to follow Him and support you in your heart, come what may. God always does good to His kingdom. Trust Him. Walk with Him and enjoy Him. Let me pray.
Father, help us to see that you always do what is good in your sight and that that is good, that is blessing to us. Help us to believe that and remember it. Lord, we need your help. We are people prone to forgetfulness, prone to wandering. It's, it's what we are. So help us, please. You remind us of this. It's, in, it's all over the Bible. You remind us of it in, in this story from long ago. But Lord, would you come and visit with your people on Wednesday and next Friday and in, in the, the details of their lives, would you come and visit with your people and speak over them, I am good. I testify to it in my word. I have proven it at the cross. Come and remind us. We will forget, but we need you. Lord, as we take the elements of communion now in our hands, as we we look at them, would you speak to your people here about what what these elements are, about a bread and, and a cup, about a covenant and a cross. Lord, speak to us about that and remind us that all of this is by your initiation, the display of your goodness for our eternal blessing. Speak now to your people, I pray. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.